Welcome to the Shack 15 Conversations podcast, where we invite founders, innovators, and changemakers to share ideas with the community, speak to the experience of building their businesses, and unlock some of the hard-earned wisdom collected along the way. The African tech scene has witnessed an explosion of innovation and growth in recent years, with several impressive startups springing up all across the continent a staggering influx of global talent and over $5 billion raised in investment. From artificial intelligence to the internet of things to blockchain, Shack 15 placed the spotlight on Africans using technologies in exciting ways to solve everyday problems and foster inclusivity. The conference on October 18th was presented in collaboration with Mest Africa in Ghana. Mest Africa is a nonprofit arm of the software company Meltwater and was established in Ghana in 2008. It has trained and developed thousands of software entrepreneurs and provided seed investment to a lot of them. The conference highlighted the success stories and investment opportunities for technology startups in Africa and why it's important that Silicon Valley pays attention now. Let's listen to the discussion. Hello, everyone. I'm super excited to be moderating this panel. And I'm extremely proud of the fact that we've been able to bring in some of the investors on the African continent that I admire the most. Because over the last few years, two, three years maybe, Africa become a little bit more trendy. People start to look at Africa. But before that, there were lots of people that worked really hard, that was committed to this continent. Lexi moved from the US because she believes so much in the African continent. When did you move from the US to Lagos? Uh, yeah, so 11 years ago now. 11 years ago. But Yarn, you've been at it longer than me, so. <laughs> I've been there too. But, uh, um, but uh, the fact that you 11 years ago came from the US and not only liked the opportunity in Africa, but move to the point that actually, not only moving to Africa, but you moved to Nigeria. Moved to Lagos. Lagos. By the way, had never been there before I moved and didn't know a single person. Um, but it's amazing. Uh, a small anecdote in that regard, and I hope I don't know if any Nigerians here, but I traveled to Ghana for a few years, and then somebody invited me to Nigeria, and I was really scared. And finally, I said yes. <clears throat> but before I left my office in San Francisco, I made a point of walking around in the whole office to make sure I said proper goodbye <laughs> to everyone. <laughs> so I'm going to Africa, I'm going to Nigeria, and uh, I just want to make sure I said proper goodbye. <clears throat> but Lexi moved from the U.S. Saying goodbye because you <laughs> thought you might love it and never return. <laughs> Not entirely, but uh, yes. Uh, and Pardon has built uh, through hustle, through hard work, what I believe is the most successful VC company that come out on the African continent. And I, have, I don't know how much you traveled, how many entrepreneurs you met, how many investment cases you have been exploring or considering, but somehow he just, just, he just find goals. And, and, and the kind of returns of his fund is absolutely remarkable. It, 
I, I think it's on the top 2% globally on VC returns. Yeah. But when did you start to invest in Africa? Uh, we started in 2015. 2015, right? And Adil is a good friend of mine. He started out, when did you start? 2013. 2013. So, I mean, you've been angel investing. The hardest thing in investing, I think, or in, in everywhere in the world is seed investment or angel investing. But Adil has been doing angel investing in Africa since 2013. So I'm incredibly proud that we're able to bring all of them together here on one panel. And I'm super excited to be able to pick their brains to try to learn a little bit of the art and the science of investing in Africa. But before I do that, I'd like everyone to give these guys a big, big applause. So, but so you guys get to know them a little bit. Um, better. I, I invite all of you to do a quick background and talk about your background, talk about your initial uh, investment experience, and then move on to what you currently do. Uh, and from there, we can dive into the themes you see in Africa, why you're passionate about Africa, why people, what, what kind of investors should not go to Africa if they're tempted, and all this good stuff. But, but maybe a little bit personal background first. Yeah, so um, I first moved to Nigeria to join a private equity firm, um, but very shortly into my time there, became super excited in what I saw was happening in the very early days of the tech ecosystem. So you were seeing incredible founders um, come out of major corporate companies or coming back from other jobs in the US or Europe and starting businesses on the ground like Flutterwave, like Paystack. And really not a lot of local investors on the ground to help support these companies, and especially the early days. So I convinced a, another very successful entrepreneur who built a billion dollar company um, to back me in setting up Singularity Investments, which was one of the first venture capital firms on the ground in Nigeria. Um, and that first portfolio, uh, we had some great success stories and, um, you know, some of the, the companies that have now really expanded beyond just the Nigerian borders and across all of Africa and, and even the world. Um, and we um, I actually just moved that platform out from the family office to my own firm called Acuity Venture Partners. We put together a second fund after that, continued to do early stage investing. Um, but even more recently, um, put our team at Acuity together with two other partners and set up Norskin 22, which is a $200 million Africa-focused tech fund um, focused on A through C. And I'm in Nigeria. The other partners are in um, Kenya and South Africa. And we're backed by um, a couple of, well, 33 uh, founders of billion dollar plus tech companies um, who have not only invested their money, but also their expertise in helping our investee companies really scale up and become the next wave of, of global unicorns on the continent. Super inspiring. Same thing? Okay. Um, so I hail from Zimbabwe. Most of you know the hyperinflation stories of Zimbabwe. The useful thing about coming from a country that sort of blows up is you take a Pan-African view as you think about opportunity and you find, you find a home wherever you can find it. 
Uh, so for me, that was really in 2015 that um, I, I think the grand observation was that there was a significant amount of interest in Africa globally from uh, later stage investors, from early stage investors and so forth, but there really was a lack of trust and understanding of the region. So when we set out to launch CRE in 2015, the view was like, hey, let's try to bring really institutional grade thinking around how we work with founders. Let's take a Pan-African view and invest not only in Nigeria, I love Nigeria, but in addition to Nigeria, let's invest in South Africa, let's invest in East Africa, and to the extent possible in North Africa as well. Uh, we took a sector agnostic view, um, saying we don't necessarily know. I think Rebecca earlier asked the question about, is it all fintech? We don't think it's necessarily all fintech, right? There's opportunity that can come from anywhere. But let's really be diligent about getting to know founders, no preconceived notions, pay attention to where we think there may be a strong signal. And really that's what we've done over the last seven years or so, uh, just trying to be you know, consistently work with the, the best in class founders that we encounter and invest not only in their seed checks, but also invest across their life cycles, um, all the way to, you know, series B, C, D, and beyond. Um, and uh, it's, it's, been, it's been an absolute joy so far. And can you tell a little bit about your returns? Because you have extraordinary returns. I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. You'll have um, to hey. sit down and, and hear his fundraising pitch to go through his returns. <laughs> Um, hey everyone, my name is Otto. Um, so I grew up in Kenya. Can everyone hear me? I grew up in Kenya, um, and the way I kind of got into investing in Africa is I was thinking section between says one is is uh, can folks hear me? Better now. Um, I was thinking of the intersection between two different pieces. One is um, things that I really enjoy and things that were meaningful to me. And the second is where I saw like a tremendous amount of opportunity. So on the opportunity side, I really believe that technology and venture capital is the most capital efficient path to power growth in emerging economies. That's since I've been 22, somehow I understood this. And as I spent time learning about technology, I used to work at Google. I worked at a VC fund called Index Ventures. I learned from all these people. I realized, wow, there is like a real opportunity here and a mental model that we can pull from some of these Western experiences that I had. So that was one. The second is really around, um, I really want to live my life in service of entrepreneurs and creative people, especially when everyone's starting point isn't the same. And I think I'm slightly different to these, this, this group of folks who are First of all, some of the earliest investors in Africa, but continue to continue to raise and deploy significant funds and significant amount of capital, um, which is like really cool, by the way, to get this group here because there's not that many people have been doing it for this long. Um, but <laughs> and so and so the way I've I've approached this is in 2013 um, I'd started angel investing in the U.S. I was living in San Francisco, and and then just went back to Kenya. Uh, where I'm from, and just started meeting a bunch of entrepreneurs every time I was going on holiday and realized there were some amazing people. And they just had no access to capital. No one was doing angel investing. No one was supporting people at the earlier stages. And I just took tiny amounts of money from my savings and just started investing. 
And this was before there was like quality investment clubs or groups doing this. And I just started, like I wrote memos for every single one. I like did reference checks on their founders. I like talked to their old managers. I called all the companies they, they were like selling to. And I just realized these, I've been looking at companies in the US, looking at companies in Africa, and the only difference was the availability of capital. Sure, there are lots of differences in the market and, and exit opportunities, and a bunch of stuff was unproven, but the fundamentals all seem really solid. So I started angel investing, um, did that for six years before a number of friends of mine who were sort of impassioned by my own passion for all of this uh, wanted to kind of co-invest with me, and then I set up a small investment club, essentially, and that's what I've been investing out of. And I, and I think the slight difference between some of the folks here versus me is I've had this really big tension in my life around wanting to be an operator and an investor. So my day job is I build software products. I work at this company called OpenSea, which is an NFT marketplace. I used to work at WordPress, on, on like WordPress for many years. Um, and I love making things. But I also love investing in amazing entrepreneurs. So I spend all my nights and weekends essentially investing and then my days building. And it's been really fulfilling so far. Cool. Thank you so much for that. So let's start with a very basic question. Why Africa? I mean, I think it's pretty easy. Um, a massive population with a lot of problems yet to be solved. And, um, and, and frankly, I think the last large market that hasn't been highly penetrated by over-competitive capital. Um, I mean, certainly to Ngozi's point, you can't just copy and paste business models, but you, you can de-risk it a lot by, by saying, look, these are business models that have worked in global markets. It will happen in Africa in some iteration, and at that point, it's just talent and execution risk. So I would say because there's a massive market potential, and although execution is not easy, um, it's actually a lot easier and a lot less competitive than I think it would be investing in a developed market like the U.S. Do you have like so when you say large, can, can you uh, can you help quantify it somehow? Just to, yeah. just to help us envision what the opportunity really is? Um, well, 1.3 billion people. Um, that in itself is a large market opportunity. And I mean, we can dive independently into each one of these subsectors and what sort of market potential that is today. But um, I mean, there's, you, you don't even know a lot of the numbers because a lot of it's still like payments, supply chain, transactions, a lot of that still happens in an informal market that we don't have a lot of data on. And just unlocking that opportunity um, itself is, I mean, we haven't even penetrated the surface. I can add a couple of specific points that I, I find interesting as well. Like one is, like, there's a very young population in all these cities. It's like, you know, median age, what is it, 19, 20 years old in like major cities like Nairobi, Lagos. Um, which means there's like a big working population, availability of a working population. The second is just like population growth, right? I think it's 21 of the top 30 cities in the next 10 years or 15 years will all be in Africa. So just like massive tailwinds around population growth, which drive they need, these people need to consume, right, in order to survive. And so there's just a lot of tailwinds on the macro side um, around population growth, urbanization, that make a lot of this like pretty, like make the market very interesting from a very long-term perspective. Yeah, I think um, there's a personal element. Uh, I was 
born and raised in Zimbabwe, like I mentioned earlier, and in some ways working in Africa is being back home in some shape or form. Um, there's a very sort of calculating global capital markets perspective, which in a way I think the, the perception around risk in Africa is dramatically disconnected from the reality of it. And so on a risk-adjusted basis, if you're thoughtful and you bring a sharp pencil to bear, you probably outperform your identical evil twin anywhere else in the world because the opportunity is just, you know, because the opportunity is there and no one is paying attention. Um, I have not yet found my evil twin, but I'm working on it. <laughs> then I think there's a, third, there's a third component where I think at the founder level, on average, you have founders for whom getting it right matters more than anywhere else in the world because there's less optionality, right? So a founder in the United States could get this job, do that, do that, do that. A high caliber founder in Africa probably really has to make it work. There's a great um, analogy that someone gave to me which I probably overuse, which is you, there's, the, there's the egg and the bacon, right? So the, with the egg, the chicken lays the egg and goes on to live its life and lays 10 more eggs and it doesn't matter. With the bacon, the pig lays down its life for your breakfast, right? So you're more likely to find, I think, bacon founders in Africa than anywhere else in the world. So when you overlay, for me at least, the emotional element of being, you know, being from the region with this kind of very calculating global capital markets perspective around risk and pricing and return, in just the fundamental reality that for founders who are building in Africa, they better make it, right? Because otherwise there really is not much else that would compare. I think that creates a perfect storm for us. Okay, so Africa is a massive opportunity. If you get it right, there are massive, massive returns. But how do you invest in Africa then? I mean, I'm sure, how many here have invested in an African tech startup? Quite a bit. How many made lots of money on that investment? <laughs> Much fewer. <laughs> that, you know, I think that's the case mostly <laughs> in most markets, but, you know, investment is hard. Investment in Africa, I tend to believe is maybe even harder. What are the, what are the learnings that you made? You came from the US. You've been in Nigeria for 11 years, investing, busting. Yeah, so my, my first um, two investments were not success stories, by the way. Um, and I think what I learned, putting my very Western eyes on uh, you know, an African problem set, is you have to invest in the, the need-to-haves and not the want-to-haves. So something that's doing, that's enabling um, 20-minute grocery delivery, that's a nice to have. And it might be something that works over here. Um, but on the African continent, I mean, you, you are going to do much better helping an informal retailer make sure that their shelves are stocked with goods, for example. And I mean, I think that that's the number one learning for me. The second is, you know, you have to frankly be on the ground or at least engaging with the, the customer on a regular basis to understand what the real needs are. Um, because we, we don't know, I, I, I mean, even being in Lagos, 
I live a different life than most of the, the customers that are engaging with my companies. So I have to make a proactive, you know, I have to go out in the marketplace, I have to ask questions, I have to be curious, and things change really rapidly. And don't underestimate also how rapidly adoption happens because, I mean, it is happening really, really quickly. Um, an illiterate, um, informal retailer, she might, you know, not be able to read, but she's using her smartphone to access credit, to buy goods on a marketplace, and to reach her customer base. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's transforming really quickly. Um, yeah, your point around need to have versus um, is nice to have really resonates with me. Um, an example of that would be when I first started investing, I'd be like, oh, this technology is really cool. Let me invest in it. And never, never made any sense because wanted this technology, no one was willing to pay for this technology. And examples of, the, examples of that now are things like analytics tools or insight tools for the sake of insight. If it doesn't save me a crap load of money, it doesn't make me a crap load of money, nobody pays for it. And so tend to avoid things like that. Um, and so, another, sorry. another specific piece really is if something isn't good, if a company isn't doing well, in the US, oftentimes there's a pretty robust aqua hire market. So talented team can find a home if their company isn't doing well. Maybe investors make some money. Maybe they make some money. There's no, already, there's no real robust aqua hire market across Africa. So in the fail case, the, the business shuts down and you often lose all your money. Um, um, I think the, the view that we take is, firstly, take a really long-term view, right, and say, if I would not want to be in this company for 10, 15 years, I should not be in it at all, right? Um, and I think when you look at the world from that lens, you do focus on things that are structurally important and that are structurally likely to succeed because the need to Lexi and Adios points the need is so entrenched and so fundamental. Um, I would go further to say I think venture capital anywhere in the world is difficult when done right. Um, I think venture capital in Africa is in some ways more difficult because of the usual sort of the dearth of information. Let me pull up a little. I think the venture business is about people and information, right? So people because people run companies, people because people share opportunities with you, people because you co-invest with people. And then it's about information because you need to have a view on where the world is, on where the world may be going. No one really knows where the world is going, but you can sort of infer from a signal that you have today where it may be going. I think the difficult thing in Africa is usually around information. It's really hard to get high quality information. Um, and so we overinvest in being plugged into all kinds of um, information streams. There's a saying that the, the, the revolution will not be televised and that is particularly true in Africa, right? You need to do the work. It's not gonna be on CNN or whatever. I think when you get that right, uh, which you mostly don't get right, occasionally you get it right, and you have great people. At the end of the day, companies are very, very headstrong founders that just bulldoze against a problem for a very long time and build a team to do so. I think when you find phenomenal founders, our view is to 
really get build a partnership with them and take that very long-term journey with them. But that's kind of how I think about it. Very interesting. Uh, by the way, we will uh, take questions from the audience as well uh, as we go along. But maybe learn a little bit about how you go about the investment. We touched a little bit, but to help the people here understand, okay, you're based in Africa, you do investment, how do you go about the investment? And how do you think it's differently from going about the investment here in Africa than in the US and other places? Well, just to start off, we work together. I mean, we're all co-investors on many companies together. Um, because the ecosystem is small and you, you have to. Um, maybe just to start there, but I'm sure I'll have other. Jan, can you explain your question a little more? When you say how, do you mean like the how do you procedural, go about like right? technicality of it? Or? What's that? Do you mean like procedurally and like process-wise? Everything from mean? procedures to how you choose to invest behind an opportunity versus you, you pass. I should call my team for this. <laughs> I, I think there's an element of, um, well, you know, it's, it's venture in many ways like anywhere else in the world where you do have to do the homework on the opportunity. You have to do the homework on the team. Um, you have to structure it correctly. You have the right governance. Formation and governance really matters because it affects how the long-term trajectory of the company plays out. Um, in the process of due diligence, you work very collaboratively with other folks in the ecosystem. And um, I mean, in some ways, not different, right? I think in a lot of instances where we've seen, let's say, US-based funds or angels invest in Africa, the classic mistake is somehow people do much less work for the investment in Africa than they would do for an investment in the United States. And somehow they assume that that's going to be fine, right? I think if you, if you apply yourself and do the same amount of work that you do for any opportunity in the US, and recognize that there's also like an information gap. Uh, end up, you know, if, if you do the work normally, you can eliminate obviously bad opportunities. It doesn't guarantee you get the good ones, but at least you can eliminate and reduce the amount of downside that you may encounter. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense to you. Take this. <laughs> yeah, I echo a lot of what Pardon said. It's like venture investing is very similar across the world. You literally look at the market, the team, the traction, um, yeah, and the product, and really trying to understand how those, and the earlier you are, the more you're betting on market and team, and then the more you have data, the more you kind of like bet on some of the traction um, and the product. And I think a couple of like specific things that I do um, that I found very helpful over the years is, one, if you find an exceptional entrepreneur and the market is big enough, don't like fuss about it. Just give them some money. Um, it always works out in the end. My biggest regrets are not giving exceptional people money um, because I was like too fussy about that like, current iteration of the product or I was too sensitive on valuation. Like all those things, mistakes I've certainly made. A couple of very like tactical things that I like to do. One is I always ask folks after a call to forward me the last few investor updates. If they have no investor updates, then it's somewhat telling. Um, and sometimes they, I, three, four days go by, and then I receive one that was dated the day before, which is also somewhat telling. Um, the second thing is I always ask a written question. So um, can you explain X or Y to me? And then have them respond with a written response, even just a short paragraph around that expressive clarity of thought. 
the ability to explain like, complex things in simple ways. Um, and the last thing is, I always ask for customer reference, and especially if there is a, like a pilot customer or something, and I ask them three questions. One is, what was it like before this product? What is it like now? And what would, well, how would you feel if I took this product away? And if they freak out when you say you're going to take the product away, typically a good sign. Cool. Any questions? No questions yet? Maybe we can have some anecdotes. Do you have like fun anecdotes about any investment that you worked really hard to get that became a really thing or, or an investment you decided not to do that became super successful? You know, something that gave a little color on how it is to be out there, you know, fighting for deals every day. Ladies first. <laughs> I need a little bit. I can talk about one that I that I miss, and I think this this goes back to Otto's point. Like, the, there have been so many companies across the African continent that have done mobile money or agency banking, and I would say, like, at some point, you just kind of get fatigued of seeing the same business model come across your desk. And I passed on one where it was an exceptional founder that um, ran a business very efficiently and is now um, one of the greatest success stories in this space in agency banking and is profitable. Um, and that company is team apt. I still want to invest, um, although valuation now is very far beyond me. So. Um, I would say, yeah, it goes very much to the point of in incredible founder and, uh, you know, it's, it's not just the business model, it's really on can you operate in that environment. And the second bit is um, so many uh, massive problems have happened in my portfolio around governance. And a lot of that has been because either tech companies believe that they can move fast and break things, but that also means not necessarily engaging with regulators or dealing with regulators in, you know, regulators on the continent are still learning themselves, but um, that has created a lot of problems in my companies, but also um, governance around building culture and talent, which is something I think now that we very much obsess over from the earliest days of our investments, and it's hugely important to the success of those companies as they scale. Can I ask, how, how big was the company when uh, you met, the, the company that you want to invest in, what was it called? T-Mapped. T-Mapped. Yeah, I mean, when we, when we saw it, it was a, a, a safe note with a $5 million cap. Yeah. Um, yeah, now it's, well, <laughs> it's not quite a billion dollar company, but they've done very well. All right, right. But could you sense that he was an exceptional founder right there then? So it was more the fatigue of the business model that, and so many of these similar cases you've seen? I could sense it because he, he believed that he, he could run a business towards efficiency and profitability rather than just reaching for scale and growth. And those unit economics were the most important thing for him to get right. Cool. Did you invest in TMAPT? No? Okay, well, that's, that's two of us then. Mm -hmm. um, this is a tricky question, John. Um, I would say, so at CRE, we try to build a relatively concentrated portfolio, and concentrated in the venture world is like 20 companies. 
which anyone in the later stage world is like, are you crazy? That's like a lot of companies, but it is what it is. Now, in forming a concentrated portfolio, I think we just have to be comfortable with knowing that we will not be in everything that's successful. So our philosophy is more, we will strive for the things that we do do to become successful and to define a category, more so than maybe to be in the big success stories that may or may not happen at a given point in time. As relates to stories, we've had, I mean, no one wants to talk about bad things happening, but we've had our fair share of things that have not gone well, right, in several companies. Um, in one, you had two very promising co-founders where the, the spouse of one of the, of the founders essentially was diagnosed with uh, stage four cancer and he just said like, I, I can't do this anymore, right? And that's a very sobering reality that is excited and energized as we may be about a company. We are still dealing with very much, you know, uh, human situations where people do get sick and people need to pull out. We had another unfortunate incident where um, the two co-founders who, who were running a business and then they decided to launch an entirely different business and kind of just did it in parallel uh, and did not really communicate much about that. So, you know, that was frustrating because we thought they had a lot of potential and it could have been something amazing. Um, and we've had other tragedies, right? People get sick, people pass away, all sorts of things. And it's a reminder that as much as, you know, we approach venture with enthusiasm and sort of a very optimistic worldview. We are still in a world where, you know, sometimes things don't work out. And, you know, it's, I think it's worth it's worthwhile paying homage to that as kind of just part of reality. Um, for me, it's, it's a story of ego both ways. Um, I think the, the first one for me was, a, uh, there was a founder I met, and this was like in the phase of Zoom meetings and I met the founder, I was like, oh, this person is like super on top of their metrics, really smart. And then they quoted me a, like a evaluation on the phone and then they sent me a follow-up email which is like a different price and then they sent me a deck which had a third price. I was like, how can you literally quote me like one million, two million and three and a half million dollars post money valuation in three separate communications? Like how am I to trust you? And you know, I realized afterwards this like entrepreneur, I was like one of their first or second ever investor calls. And I didn't see past the fact that they were just being inexperienced. And I was like, oh, this person's like trying to trick me or something like that. And that was a, that was a mistake for me around um, not understanding the concept of inexperience versus some sort of like ill will. The second is really something I experience quite often. I, I often invest at the, really the earliest stages, oftentimes the first person to invest. And I'll see things really early and pass on it. But from the entrepreneur's perspective, it's like this person didn't believe in me. They passed, on my, they passed on my investment, and they, I won't get a chance to talk to them again in six months when I 100% would have invested. And I still have, have you, have you figured out how to solve that problem? I've, I haven't figured out, I wish I had a solution for this, but I haven't figured out a good way to solve this problem. Yeah, so um, declining is a, I mean, I think it has happened both ways where some founders have really taken it personal. I mean, these, these are, their companies are their babies, right? And. I mean, what we have said is we believe in you. This is a problem set that we think you're solving. These are the numbers we would like to see, and that's, I think, where we would be interested. Yeah. I mean, there's an axiom that the next best thing after a yes is a quick no. 
Um, and it's especially true for founders or anyone who's raising capital. So we do try to adhere to that axiom where if it's a no, make it really quick. Uh, it hurts less. Still hurts, but hurts less. Um, and then I would also say, I think being very humane, right, in when you let someone down or you disappoint them, we've actually had the good, the good fortune of having deals be referred to us or opportunities be referred to us by founders that we said no to that turned out to be wildly successful, right? And I think a lot of why they were willing to do that was in the entire experience, they felt like we'd been very humane and respectful of the effort of their undertaking. Um, and that, that's been, you know, that's, that's been part of our experience. Yeah. I think we had a, a couple of questions. So, do we have a microphone? I think it was a question down there. There was a question here, and there was a question over there and here. Uh, can any of you comment on the private healthcare market in on the continent? Um, yes, wide, wide open and still a lot of things to do there. I mean, um, Lagos itself just had their first hospital where I would feel comfortable being treated for something, you know, that was catastrophic, but before that there was absolutely nothing. And then I think everything still around the technology ecosystem, you know, the um, systems management, electronic health records management, health insurance, telemedicine, um, there's certainly some companies that have launched businesses there, but I think it's absolutely still wide open and underpenetrated. My, my mom is a midwife and my wife is a physician, but I have a horrible track record investing in healthcare. So uh, maybe because of the emotional jinx, I don't know, like all the investments I've made, I think it's been the right business models, the right, but just not done it well. So I'm gonna not say anything. I, I thought I would just, hi, I'm David. I'm a founder in Southern Africa. I run a company called Jabu. We're a B2B e-commerce with last mile distribution. I would just add a little bit to what you were saying, Adol. I had a lot of no's. Uh, when we were, we've raised a Series A recently, but especially when we did our seed round, you'd like have to really boil the ocean. And when we got a lot of no's, the no's were a lot like, I mean, what Lexi was saying, like, we'd like to see these numbers, or, you know, it was empathetic, but you kind of put them in a bucket that says no, and you don't look at it again. But there was two or three people who were extremely helpful after they said no. Like, they put us in touch with other people who may invest that early. They asked us questions that they thought we should try to solve. And they stayed in touch, even though we weren't thinking of staying in touch, because we are overwhelmed looking for a yes. So I think if you really believe in someone, it's always really helpful to do a little bit extra to stay in touch with them. Because there are so many people who've come to us later saying, oh, I wish I knew you were still raising later. And we're like, oh, but you said no a year ago. Um, so it could be helpful. But it was for us with those two people, and they ended up investing later on when they felt more comfortable. I think that's an excellent, excellent feedback. Thank you for that. And, and by the way, a lot of my uh, strongest investments have been from referrals from other entrepreneurs that maybe I didn't even invest in, but that felt that I was being helpful to their company and introduced me to other founders that they really respected. Actually, 
believe it or not, my Flutterwave investment came as a referral from my investment in Paystack. Um, <laughs> at the time, they weren't directly competing, um, but yeah, the, they. That's funny. I thought that's really funny. Hi, I'm John Chicatano of Pangea Global Ventures, supporting African agribusiness. Uh, so continuing on the line of questioning about non-fintech and health, where do you see opportunities outside of tech in Africa? Outside of tech? Well, I mean, all the opportunity is in tech. <laughs> uh, supply chain is a massive problem, and that's across many verticals. And of course, tech can help solve that problem. Um, but everything from ag to pharmaceuticals uh, to auto parts to anything cross-border within the continent, that's it's a massive problem. There's an argument that um, you can think of African economies as there's kind of one bucket which is natural resources and oil and gas, and there's a bucket which is agriculture, there's a bucket which is consumer products, mostly things that people eat and, and so forth. There's the bucket which is banks and telcos. And I think a lot of the tech innovation that we've been a part of has mostly been focused on the bank and telco nexus. We have really not seen a lot of technology companies permeate the other categories as much, like agriculture, natural resources, oil and gas, and so forth. Um, our mandate requires that we focus on technology. But I think technology, by definition, can touch any vertical, right? Um, and we are very, very keenly excited to find any opportunities in some parts of the old economy, or uh, natural resources, or in gas, less the exploration of it, but perhaps software to help how those companies operate, be more efficient, and so forth, um, to support agriculture, to support the consumer economy, consumer products, and so forth. Um, I think technology just drives capital efficiency. So, like these folks tend to tend to support more technology businesses. But I've had a few friends do pretty well on avocados and fish farms. If I should uh, be able to point out some industries, I, I would say like tech has a you know phenomenal opportunity across a number of industries in Africa. But I do think industries that at least jumps out to me is you know, agriculture, because agriculture is such an intrinsic part of the African ecosystem today, right? So anything you do on the agriculture that can elevate, yield, uh, reduce losses, has massive, massive value. Uh, I do think health is massive. It's huge population. I think education is massive. It's, it's a, I mean, it's such an incredibly large uh, population and young population is growing very fast. The reason why MEST ended up in Africa uh, was to one of the points that you made, Adil. You know, the median age on the sub Saharan African continent, when I looked at it, it was 18.6. The median age in Europe is like 45. The median age in North America is like. 39. The median age in Southeast Asia is 41 or something like that. So Africa is an outlier from a population perspective. 
the, the, the youth of Africa and the growth of that population is an outlier compared to anywhere in the world. So education, massive. And also because Africans really value education. I think, I think the counterpoint to that, though, is a business models that work. Right, so there's an embarrassment of opportunity in as much as nothing, well, very little has been built. The hard thing is how do you do it capital efficiently? How do you do it with good unit economics? How do you do it to be, a, 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 you know, in venture certainly because you have such high probability of failure in any one company, you want every single company you invest in to have pretty like large potential returns. So getting that along with good unit economics, along with good, makes it really hard, never mind having a high quality team that's executing on it. I think that that's often a, you know, um, that's where the, the rubber hits the road in some ways. Uh, can I, can I, I'll just add one thing on the education and healthcare side. I've been thinking a bit about this as well. And the stuff that I'm most excited about is where like the marginal replication cost is zero. So for example, like to distribute like a course from the Khan Academy, which is like the potentially like the best quality learning content to a student in Africa, how do we make that replication cost zero? Um, how do we get like really, really cheap diagnostics such that um, an AI can detect if you have lung cancer or whatever with zero replication costs? So like the cost of treatment or the cost of issuance of, of education or healthcare goes down essentially to zero. That I think when we see start seeing business models like that, it becomes really, really exciting. Um, yeah. Two more questions. Um, I'm Gabriella, investor at Archangel Fund. Um, Sub-Saharan Africa has uh, the largest population of female entrepreneurs anywhere else in the world. And in the last decade, only 3% of funding, VC funding, has gone to startups funded by women. How are you going about investing, keeping in mind um, a gender-focused uh, lens on the continent? So we, we don't invest with a gender lens, but what we have committed to is making, committing that at least 20% of our pipeline has a female founder at the top. So it can be a co-founder, of course, but that is to make sure that we are proactively searching out and looking at the opportunities where there is a, a woman there. Um, interestingly about our fund, where there's three GPs, two of us are women. Um, and I think there is a piece of not only the network that women investors have um, because they have friends, associates, whatever it might be that are often women, but also understanding in some, in some sets the, the problem problems that the uh, female founders are solving that might not be the same that some of their male counterparts are. Um, so I think it's also some place where we probably have a little bit of a, a secret sauce. We've had, sorry, very quickly. Let's continue the question. I need to, I'll be right back. <laughs> uh, hi, my name is Jinker. Uh, Lexi and Pardon invested in an African setup I worked at five years ago called the Soko Insight. Uh, my question to both of you is, what is the biggest difference you've seen in the African venture scene since then that was most surprising to you that you did not expect to see? And what are you in What are you excited about in the future? Ladies first. Okay, so I'm sure if I think about this, I'll have a better answer. But um, I, I guess I believed that for a long time the big infrastructure plays would be 
where the investment opportunity was. So payments, identity, um, some of these, you know, data like Asoko um, is, is solving. But I think what we've seen, and much faster than I would have thought, is that because all of these infrastructure plays have really built out the rails, now there are so many very attractive, more, not necessarily niche, but, but subsets of, that have built on these rails, you know, that are, um, uh, payroll for workers that are geographically dispersed, for example. And with attractive unit economics based on those business models that have now become very strong success stories in their own right. And I think that's happened a lot faster than I would have believed. I think for, for us it's more so just been, well, partly the volume of capital going into the region. So um, in, I think in 2015 when we set up CRE, maybe $100 million went into venture in Africa. In 2017, 2018, I think that number was around 300 million. Um, and then last year, I think the number hit, depending on whom you ask, about $4.2 billion or so. So in the space of 2017 to 2022, you had about a 14x pop in the volume of capital going into the region. And um, the, someone commented earlier, I said there's something like 700 deals that got funded or something last year. So there's kind of really an, an ecosystem that's coming to life. Uh, and yet we, we know that despite that 14x pop in the total volume of dollars going into the region, um, Africa is still only getting about a third of the dollars that are going into comparable peers like Latin America, only a third of what's going into Southeast Asia, and about 10% of what's going into India. So you get this sense that there is an inflection that we're living through more so today than when we first backed Asoko. And yet there's still so much headroom, right? So we think if anyone in this room is 21 years old and wondering what to do with their career, it's not a bad idea to look in the space. Hello. Uh, hi, I'm Lundy. I work for Untapped, which is an active investor on the continent, but I used to be with MEST, so I'm very familiar with the amazing work that MEST does. Um, what would your advice be to investors or potential investors in the room who don't have access or are unfamiliar with Africa at this point but want to get involved? Great question. Uh, become an LP first. <laughs> There's a couple funds here where you could... Um, no, but, but seriously, I think that's a great way to learn because you can really, you, I mean, I think all of us are prolific communicators and either on the, you know, in calls, in writing, newsletters, um, and really like our investors to also be involved in our deals because it also brings another perspective. If we're, you know, ground zero with our nose really deep in the business, it, it is helpful to hear other perspectives on investors that have maybe seen it happen around the world. Um, and, and then, you know, we also open up co-investment opportunities to our investors as well and like to get them involved. I think it depends on your objective. Is your objective to get exposure to, to the like, returns that you get and then curated learnings from smart folks like, like these folks? Or is your objective to like really get to know the founders, like, uh, you know, support the entrepreneurs, like have the more like direct relationship? If it is around like exposure and learning and curation, then I think being an LP is a really great way to do it. 
there are a bunch of these like smaller uh, like investment clubs now where you can invest very small like smaller amounts of money and get to know the founders more directly. Um, and I think that's also like a, a decent way to do it too. But I think it really depends on your own personal objectives and also how much time and capital you're willing to give. I agree with both Lexi and Adio, and I would also say, I think being clear on your objectives informs what the right approach is and what work you should do to prepare, right? I'm the last person to say just jump in the fray because I don't want you to lose money because once you lose money, you're going to tell your friends that Africa is a horrible place to invest. So I'd rather you actually took your time being very clear on what you're trying to, to, to do and finding the right counterparties to do it with, because if you do well, then you tell your friends that you're doing well, and you know, um, the stigma around Africa being unbankable begins to be uh, redressed. It's unfortunate that in the height of the boom last year, you had the exact opposite happening, where people were spending zero time thinking about what they were doing and writing checks, and of course, when those companies don't do well, they don't say, oh, I made a poo-poo, they say, oh, the continent made a poo-poo, right? Which is unfair. Cool. I think we have time for two more questions. One question there and one question here. Great, thank you. Hi, everyone. My name is Christina Cairns. Um, I am with the U.S. Development Finance Corporation and formerly USAID uh, Power Africa. And my question, you can probably guess, is geared towards um, around impact investing. And have you seen a trend towards investments that have a sustainable development goal as an ultimate objective or a lens of impact to it. Um, and as we know, Africa is bearing the brunt of a lot of the impacts of climate change, including drought, forced migration, war, um, as well as resource degradation. And just building on the question about women-owned and led SMEs, is that a role that you see yourselves playing, or do you think that that's still the realm of DFIs and other development agencies? Uh, no, we see, I mean, we are a commercial fund that very much um, believes that the sect, and we chose the sectors that we're investing in because they are high impact sectors. And those sectors are our fintech, market enablement, medtech, and edutech. Um, and we very much track impact and align with our, the founders of our companies in doing that also. So, you know, a lot of the companies that we're investing in, they very much also see impact as aligned with their business model on the commercial side, but also um, something that they believe is important to the success of, of their own business. Um, by the way, 20% of our carried interest also goes back into building hubs and developing entrepreneurship on the African continent, so we also have that impact angle as well. Um, I think it's something that um, you, as a responsible investor, um, you shouldn't be avoiding and you should really, you should be putting your money and your time into helping um, not only the, the African continent, but, but also, you know, employment, entrepreneurship as these businesses expand outside of their own borders to the rest of the emerging market. We too are a commercial fund that is uh, conscientious of and sort of tracks what our impact footprint is. So on the point around women, for instance, in our fund one, about 46% of all our dollars went into companies that had female co-founders or female um, executive officers in the C-suite. In our fund two, actually 56% of our capital did that, which is 20, 30 times the benchmarks you find in the world. 
Um, no, we didn't do that because we were being nice. We did that because these women were phenomenal founders, right? So I think for us it's more, if you're tuning in, if you're dialing into all the stations of where opportunities are coming from, it is very unlikely that your hit rate for backing women is 2%. I think the reason you end up with those very skewed statistics is um, a lot of investors are unwilling to listen to people that are not from their closed networks. So where you have phenomenal founders that are not quite part of a club or you know, don't have a certain level, an insider access, if you will, they get excluded. So we, we do think that um, it's, it's inane and it's silly that on, so little capital goes into female-backed companies when the human race is roughly 50-50. I think that's one point. And then the, the second thing I would say is, I think historically where the tension arises between the way we think about things and sometimes what our impact counterparties discuss is sometimes the impact rubric is very specific and may be driven by the specific worldview of a foundation, an international institution, that has a mandate that's pushing that. And when the rubric becomes a little too specific, you have a burden on the person who's deploying capital to try to meet this very, very narrowly defined definition of what impact constitutes. And that becomes a challenge for investors. But I think if, if everyone is taking a view that impact means so many different things, you tend to find that you know, most, most sensible investing in Africa categorically touches on the things that, that are important. Um, I think of it from two perspectives, really centered around um, youth unemployment. Like there's so many young people, many folks don't have work, and so things that create employment opportunities as well as products and tools that empower others to generate kind of economic value for themselves that's the way I think about it. I have like no mandate around impact, and like, I would say like my fund operates more like an angel investing fund than like a proper VC fund. Cool. Last question. Yeah, I think for um, my name is Nafisa Sarudi. I'm working with um, a queen of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Queen Diambi Kabatiswela. She's this incredible, powerful woman who uh, has chosen to um, reign as a as a as a queen, but within a, within a kingdom, right? And so the kingdom is masculine, but she is a woman, and she has embraced the feminine and masculine. And and in thinking about um, you know what's happening in Africa and the world, um, we've been kind of we've kind of stepped back. I'm just kind of offering this as a as like a food for thought, and I would love to hear your perspectives on this. Where um, when we think of, uh, about opportunities versus um, problems, when we, we kind of word things that way, whereas Africa has many problems to solve, um, having had also come from a, a more of a traditional ancient culture of Iran, I respectfully think that um, Africa and a lot of the more ancient cultures uh, within, um, within, you know, uh, countries from our continents from long, much longer history have much more answers than they have problems. And I wonder if I could invite us to um, kind of embrace more indigenous ways of being where as, you know, what we what would imagine as where we had advanced as, as where we are today, um, really where has it led us to, right, besides pillage and rape of our, of, of, our, of our 
world, right? And unhappiness and, and depression and anxiety. And when we think about agriculture, the healthcare system, the education system, um, the economic system, it's actually, are we really successful? Are we really doing well? You know, and you think about San Francisco and what's happening when, when you walk out with all the homelessness and all the poverty and juxtaposition with all the wealth in the, in the world. Are we really, really happy? And is that what we want to be bringing to Africa? I mean, when we think about advancement, what are we really talking about here? You know, so I just want to kind of raise that awareness around um, when we, with dollars, or we choose to invest. It's actually this is an opportunity for us for a paradigm shift beyond what we have done thus far in the West, which is hasn't resulted in anything really positive. In in a three hundred thousand you know year history of Homo sapiens, we've managed to you know, lead to in a really horrible place right now. So can we actually change that? We, we who are powerful, who have the power, who have the ability, who have the clarity, and who have the funding. It's just an invitation. Thank you for that. But my personal view is we can't also have a paternal um, lens when we're viewing Africa, right? Like, let the people and the companies decide how they want their life to be, whether that's access to education or financial services or what be it? I think you asked like incredibly profound question, which is at the end of the day, what are we doing, right? And what's the world we're gonna leave our kids, we're gonna leave our kids and our grandkids and so forth. And frankly, commercial investors, finance people, entrepreneurs don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about that. And I don't know that I have an answer or like a prescription that I can share with anybody, frankly. But I think a conscientious approach to saying, are we investing in things that are making the world a better place? Are we investing in companies that reinforce things that are constructive to society? Are we investing? And from that point of view, I think Africa is incredibly blessed, right? Because by being behind, we have not necessarily entrenched some of the less constructive or maybe more destructive ways of industrializing that have played out in other parts of the world. And we have an opportunity to essentially take an entirely different script that does well, do well, create opportunity, have all the returns, but leaves a better world for, um, I have an 11 month old, before she was born I didn't care, now I care. But uh, I thought what you just said was very beautiful. Uh, I've been in and out of Africa. I travel to Africa every quarter, and I've been doing that since 2008. And every time I go to Africa, I'm, I'm struck with how much happy people I see. I see happy people on the streets that don't have much. They have products on their head that they're selling to the cars. Um, I'm thinking about the students at our program that, you know, they're talking about their aunties and uncles and the people that are close with, but they're not really uncles and aunties. They're just people they know. They're like neighbors and so on. And there's this deep human connection that, at least me that grew up in Norway, I, um, it's not obvious I'm from Norway, but I grew up in Norway, 
And but I, there's a deep human connection that you see in Africa uh, that I think is envi enviable. So I totally get what you're saying in terms of, okay, the Western world is so successful and, yeah, in certain ways, but in other ways, it's not. So I, I, at least that resonated really well with me. Um, okay, but we are running a little bit out of time, um, but I was thinking I was going to ask each of you to answer one question. Because one of the things that come up has been this exceptional entrepreneur, right? It doesn't matter what price they quote for the company. It doesn't matter, you know, as long as the opportunity in the industry is big enough, you know? But how do you know if a person is an exceptional entrepreneur? And I think that goes for investing everywhere in the world. So based on all your years of experience, all your pattern recognition, what would you say is an exceptional entrepreneur, and how do you how do you know that that's the person you are uh, interacting with? I, well, I was going to say my most successful have been the most arrogant, believing that they are the one to solve the biggest problems that um, they're facing, and that really they're on, the only ones that are able to do it. By the way, it's the same sort of profile of founder that might uh, break a lot of rules while they're doing it. Um, so governance is also important. Um, but, but yes, that, that's where I found the most success, men and women, by the way. Um, I, I spend most of my first conversations with entrepreneurs really asking them, they almost always want to talk about the business, but I always bring it back to like, tell me your story. And then what I'm trying to understand is like the clear why for what they're doing. If their why is extremely clear and deep-rooted in something they really believe in, and their backgrounds match, like they have the relevant experience to solve the specific problem, and they understand it deeply, that really, really speaks to me as, a, as an investor. So I try to understand the why, and then I flip the switch completely from like this human piece to like, are they on top of their metrics? Do they understand, like, are they like good planners? Are they good communicators? Do I believe they can raise capital? Do they understand unit economics? So it's like this very soft, like deep why understanding, and then the flip to like all the hard, like almost harder metrics. Um, and when they nail both, it's like a no-brainer for me. I actually think that's a very difficult question because human beings are so incredibly unpredictable. Um, and nowadays there's actually like a cottage industry of advisors who can train an entrepreneur to sound and look and present a certain way, which makes it even more confusing, right? Um, I'm an engineer by training, so I'm a really bad judge of character. So, and I go with very, very simple axioms. And for me, it's, it's bacon and egg, right? Are you going to lay down your life for this? If you are, let's have a conversation. If you're not, and this is like, you know, a sunny, sunny walk in a park on a Sunday and you do something entirely different, then, you know, I think the odds are not great. We don't get it right all the time still, but at least we can eliminate the odds of being in a flaky situation. And yeah, that's, that's how I think about it. Well, on that note, I learned a lot, learned a lot about uh, the egg and the bacon today. I really appreciate that. But I like if you don't remember anything else from this whole thing. <laughs> Become but a vegetarian. It was, it was so good to see each of you. It's been too long that uh, we got to hang out. And I'm so grateful and I want to thank each of you for actually coming here.
and sharing with your knowledge and experience. And I'd like all of you to give these guys a big, big applause. Thank you so much. Let's give them another big round of applause. I think that was such an informative session. So I see a couple of people standing in the back. If you need a seat, please come in. We are just about to move into our pitch session. So we have three exciting pitches from some of the most hottest up and coming startups. I'd like to invite YFlix up to get us started. Let's invite Lewis up with a round of applause, please. So there's some seats in the front for those in the back that don't have seating. Please come and fill in. All right, I know some of us are getting some refreshment. Those who are looking for seats, please come in and fill in quickly. And then I'd like to ask for some silence as we get ready to hear Louis tell us about Yflix. Let's quickly come in and settle down. Yeah. We'll have enough time for networking. Say that again. Oh, yes, yes. So we are really excited to have one of our MEST portfolio companies here in San Francisco today to tell us about their company. I'm gonna come, I'm gonna come over there because <laughs> I think I need to capture some attention in this room. So we are gonna have more than enough time for networking, nobody's leaving, Adil is not going anywhere. If you would please indulge me and settle down, let's give Lewis our undivided attention. It's crazy in here. <laughs> he said you can yell. Hello. Thank you in the back, can I have your attention? Once again, we are inviting up YFlix. This is a mess portfolio company. We're super excited, and you're about to learn why. Let's give Luis our attention. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. Hi, everyone. My name is Louis, and uh, together with my co-founder here, Bright, we founded YFlix. Um, YFlix is a subscription video-on-demand platform. Um, uh, predominantly in Africa, we're operating in Ghana, Nigeria, and Kenya. We're looking at launching in a lot more countries in Africa. Premium entertainment has been growing in a lot of parts of the world, but that cannot be said about Africa. Even though OTT in Africa is set to generate $2 billion by 2027. Um, with the likes of Netflix, Showmas, and others in, in Africa, you can actually see that most of these guys have been in Africa for quite a very long time but they are virtually bringing in their gross as an average 100,000 customers a year, which is not so too good. But these are some of the problems. The problem is the same thing that Ingozi said in the previous two sections. Most of these guys come to Africa and they just copy and paste. They bring the same sort of system, the same sort of uh, platforms without looking at the various country economic factors. What make Africa, Africa? What makes these countries very different? 
payment systems, subscription processes, the way we onboard our customers and a lot more. This dives us stream into the problem of the day. Most of what we've actually come to understand is that in most of these countries, there are some fundamental issues that runs through operating and running streaming services in Africa. One big thing is internet. It's not that there's lack of internet, there's internet almost everywhere, but reality is that the internet is very expensive. The cost of internet limits people from streaming. There's one thing having access to Netflix, Showmax, and even Wifelix ourselves, but there's other thing having access to great internet to be able to stream on those platforms. I live in the Netherlands. I stream a lot. I spend, like, literally if I have to spend or look at my streaming capacity in the Netherlands, in Ghana, where I'm originally from, I'll be spending around $50 a month. Most of my friends and even my co-founder spends around $50 a month. And these are the people that most of these big streaming platforms in Africa go in and look out for, the top 15% on the market. Everybody deserves to have entertainment. They look at those part of the market, and that's the reason they are not growing that much. The second issue that we have in Africa is also payment. Most of these platforms, when they come around, they don't look at the various economic factors around payment itself. One of the biggest payment facilitators in Africa, most people think is mobile money, is actually direct carrier billing with airtime. Most of these telcos have integrated into the core system of Africa in a way that you can easily buy a scratch card, scratch it, put it in your phone, and you can almost buy anything via the telecom party on telco products as valued added services. Most of these things don't happen in, in, in big streaming platforms. One other issue that also happened in our streaming world, even though the creative economy is growing so much and it's becoming so big, is that filmmakers and content partners do not find a place to put their content. So there's no centralized platform to monetize their content in a much more bigger perspective. Most of these guys just create content and put it on YouTube. And a lot of people watch it for free. And it gets to a certain point where they need to generate revenues out of that really bits and tiny bits of revenue that comes out of YouTube in itself. And this is where we come in as Wifelix. We are a subscription video on demand platform and live streaming platform in Africa with a bold agenda to democratize content in Africa, thereby also reducing spend in data so we get our free data to our customers to be able to stream. And we localize our services through telco parties like MTN, Vodacom, and others in Africa. We are currently in Ghana, Nigeria, and Kenya. We are looking at expanding to a lot more countries in Africa as well. With the exception of that, we also look at um, uh, different kinds of payment um, um, uh, flows with our customers in all. So payment frequency is a very much bigger stuff in Africa. Most of consumers consume stuff as pay as you go. When you buy credit on your phone, you use when do you want to use it. When you're using electricity, it's pay as you go. You top up, you use when you want to use it. There's nothing like postpaid. The life here in Europe, the life in, in, in America, and the life in a lot more places is more a monthly bill. So when you subscribe to Netflix, they charge you in a month. You know exactly when they charge you. In Africa, no one has the money to put in for the month. We put, in, we put our money on our phones and we spend when we want to spend on products that we want to spend at a particular point in time. And we have localized our service to do um, bits and pieces of uh, micro on telcos. So we charge daily, weekly, and monthly. With daily being one of our biggest subscription products in Africa as a whole. These are our customer groupings. So we look at the, 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 the whilst big streaming platform look at the top 15% of the market, the likes of you in this room who are able to pay for streaming, who are able to pay for quality internet, we look at the top, uh, the low 15% of the market, which is basically the mid to low tier. Those that do not have much money to stream, we've come up with a deal with the telcos, combined with telcos data, they are able to buy a bundle from us, 
free access to our, pl our platform, unlimited access to content, live streaming, series, live TV, and a whole lot of stuff on our platform. And with our data, they're able to stream at any time, anywhere, anyhow they want to stream on our platform and all. So the likes of Benetians and um, MFR, these are students who are basically do not have much money. They work in, some work in the, in the stock shop, some um, said earlier by our earlier panelists, some actually work on the streets, sell stuff, and do a lot more stuff. These guys deserve to watch quality content. They don't have that much money, but we are able to give them content as, as and when their pocket fits. The opportunity for us commercially is really huge. We're currently looking at just five key markets in the next three years, which is Ghana, Kenya, Nigeria, Zambia, and South Africa. With these markets, we are looking at collective um, customer acquisition of around 448 million customers. This is as per telco data per country. Out of that, we are looking at a target market of 193 um, million. These are the 85%. 85% of the market that are data enabled, that really knows about streaming and want to stream, but do not have that much money to stream. And that, that brings us to a targeted um, um, revenue generated per month of 147 million per month. That is if we are able to recoup or get all these customers on our platform. Currently, we are looking at just 3.2% of the, of the market, which is um, um, a market share of like um, 6.2 million. Looking at this, we are looking at generating 4.5 million month on month by the end of 2024. The opportunity for content is quite huge as well. The film industry alone, which is separated from the OTT industry where we belong, is set to generate um, $5 billion um, contribution to Africa's GDP um, year on year. Reality is such that even though the creative industry is growing and is becoming this big, there are fewer screens for people to watch um, um, uh, movies as well. If you look at the market that we target, especially in Western Africa, with the likes of Nigeria, Ghana, and other countries in there, the number of people or the population in there is around over 500 million people. The number of screens for these guys to watch the movies that they love day on day and watch them, those local blockbuster movies that is being advertised everywhere else, is around almost 300 screens. This is where we come in. The opportunity is huge, content is booming, and they need a centralized platform they can bolt on to be able to watch any content, anyhow, anywhere they want. You know. Our traction over the past 20 months has been phenomenal. Currently, we're doing around 700,000 month-on-month subscriptions, and we are growing so fast. Um, we have over 640 content plays on our platform with 41% activity rates on there as well. We have a lot of daily customers, and this is why most of them are subscribing on our platform up to 10 times in a month. And this is really phenomenal for us. Um, when we started last year, as you know, our main operation goes, we started with around an average 16,000 paid subscription within the first quarter. Currently, we're doing 1.9 million paid subscriptions as per last quarter. Um, comparing this to the first quarter, we're actually doing almost four times what we did in our first quarter this year. This current quarter, we hope we can do an 8x or a 6x on the quarter as well. With respect to our revenue, we've grown significantly. When we started, we are doing just $4,000. Uh, um, uh, $4, Currently, we're doing around $229,000 within um, the last quarter, which is really phenomenal for us. We're doing micro billing, so the money comes in bits. Our content traction has been phenomenal so far. We don't buy content. Our strategy is just that 
we don't go out to buy content. We create some of these content, but we go into content acquisition deals with these content partners, like we have the bigs of Warner Media, Dolby, Sony, Media Guru, and lots, lots of them on our platform as well. We go into a revenue share agreement with them. We have all these guys on our platform, which we're able to share their content to a lot more people on our platform in general. Our operational model, as I said, is quite very simple. We do a 70-30 revenue strip using um, a stream-centric system um, with our content partners with no acquisition at all, so we don't spend getting content from these guys. We pass them through our platform, which is an iOS bag, so we have, we're on iOS, Android, TV OS, and we're also on Android TV as well for most of the TVs in Africa, which forms about 70% of the TVs we have in there as well. And we run our operations through third parties and also telecoms. Telecoms are the building blocks of most of the success stories in Africa with respect to startups. We are in there to go through them, to get to their customers, for them to easily board onto our platform via their USSD channels, SMS channels, or web channels, or even some secure portals that they create on their own as well. Our business model is quite very simple. A daily eight cents, a day charge in Ghana, Nigeria, and Kenya, a 50 cents weekly, and a monthly of $1.50. Outside Africa, we charge $5.99 a month. And with this, we are able to add network data for our customers to be able to stream freely on us. So they don't have issues with connectivity because the content is localized through telcos and they don't have issues with accessibility at all. We are different in so many ways because we are not targeting the top 15% of the market like the people we have in this room, but we are targeting the mass market. We believe everybody deserves good content. We look at, we look at operationalizing our, our, our company through third parties, as I said, with telecoms and also media companies like Arena um, um, in South Africa and a lot more. And we give our data to our customers. Our vision is very simple. We're currently looking at democratizing content in Africa. It's a bold agenda for us. We want, every, we want our content to be in every single home in Africa. And that is what we look at. We're just not giving our content. We're looking at massively looking at ways of entitlement, encoding, at giving our customers up to like Dolby 5, the one special sound experience, not just things that happen in Europe, like you going to the cinema to watch stuff on IMAX. We want to bring the IMAX experience and Dolby experience to our customers. And we have a special announcement on this after this as well. Our team is very simple. Um, uh, it's, it's been led by myself and my partner, Bright. We go way back, um, um, over 15 years of experience in, in telco, in building products, in media tech, and also in content as well. And to, together with us, we have a virtual team of 10 people and then 16 core team that work with us um, in Ghana, Nigeria, and Kenya, Germany, and some other parts of the world as well. Now, the reason why we think everybody here should win with us is that Within, by the end of the year, we've set our revenue targets to hit 100K MRR, which we are hitting this month. We're almost there. Um, that's an early mark for us. We're ex we expanding in Kenya as well. We've been able to tie our deal with Safaricom in Kenya. So we're launching through Safaricom. That's a massive platform for us to display our platform. And we are looking at reaching 1 million paid subscriptions monthly. Currently, we are doing over 700,000. We're looking at 1 million paid subscriptions month on month from um, December. And we're adding 10. Um, 10,000 more hours of content on our platform as well. On the long term, we're looking at 1.4 million MRR by 2024, uh, 3 million paid subscriptions, 60,000 hours of content added to our content portfolio, and then we launch a Dolby-powered 
post-production house in Ghana and Nigeria, which is one of the biggest issues with content in Africa. Because reality is, we take good pictures, we create nice, nice, nice videography and other stuff, but always the results is that bad. We've seen it with a lot of creators, filmmakers, and others in Africa, and we are looking at fixing this. We have a tight um, a, um, partnership with Dolby, and we're looking at using that to do a free post-production studio in Africa, where all content can pass through and end up on our platform as well. We're looking at generating an average 3,000 a month for our film, young filmmakers in Africa. Currently, we have over 900 filmmakers, individual, young, and creating content for ourselves, uh, for, for our platform, but we're looking at expanding that and getting them well paid as well. And we're looking at expanding in Ghana, um, expanding in Nigeria, Zambia, and South African markets. You know. I've got a short announcement for us, a video to play. on a journey to write our own story. A journey with adversities, growth, excitement, and of course, new experiences. Want to change the narrative? Shift the conversation to tell the African story to the world the African way. A journey to deliver superior entertainment to our customers. Here we go. Wifelix became the first African-owned video on-demand platform to deliver Dolby Atmos and Dolby Audio experience to its customers. It's a major advance from stereo and even surround sound. In stereo, streams of sound are delivered through two channels. Surround sound enhanced audio by creating five or seven channels. It's a much richer experience, but the limitations of channels still remain. Dolby Atmos revolutionizes audio by freeing sound from channels. As a result, it can create a complete atmosphere of sound all around you, even overhead. Dolby Atmos, go inside the story. Our work with Dolby marks a significant milestone for us as Wifelix, as we are the first African-owned live streaming and video on demand platform to offer spatial sound entertainment experiences for our customers with Dolby Atmos. It is incredible for decades how Dolby has been a leader in transforming entertainment experiences in the home and in the cinema. We at Wifelix are constantly innovating to change the building blocks of entertainment in Africa. This milestone represents our continued commitment to bringing a world-class streaming experiences to our customers in Africa and the diaspora as a whole. Want to share this excitement with our customers all over Africa who can now connect more deeply with their favorite TV series and movies in a theater quality experience in the comfort of their homes through their Dolby compatible devices. We hope our customers will love the all new experience we bring to them on Wifelix. Thank you. gonna stop it here so that we make time for it. Thank you guys. Wow, thank you so much. I think he deserves a bigger round of applause than that. Yeah. <laughs> so without much ado, we're gonna move on to the next pitch. 
he will be around throughout the networking hour, so please feel free to speak more to the team at YFlix. I'd love to invite up next, Smile Identity. Cameron will tell us a little bit more about what they do. Thanks, uh, I'm Cameron Gray, I'm the CTO of Smile Identity, which means I'm much better at building products than I am at pitching them, so you'll have to bear with me. But uh, I'm really, really happy to be here. Um, it's also really fun that in the investor panel, three out of the four people, including the moderator, were on my cap table, so I really like that. Um, so Smile is the leading digital identity provider across the continent. Uh, we're about 55, 60 people uh, distributed all over the world. We uh, verify over 2 million identities every month and growing, actually this month is probably more than that. And we're integrated with over 16 ID authorities uh, across Africa. And we currently cover over a billion unique identities. We offer a whole full suite of KYC services. If you don't know KYCs, know your customer. It's a banking regulation, but really we have a very simple mission, which is to allow anybody in Africa to easily prove their identity and gain access to the critical services they need to be part of the economy and be upwardly mobile and live their lives. Um, you know, the services we offer are everything from just basic text verification to our flagship products, which are biometric authentication, allow you to prove your identity with just a selfie and an ID number. And then we have a comprehensive suite of anti-fraud tools as well. I think this has come up a lot uh, today, but uh, one of the ways I like to think about the opportunity in Africa is that by 2050, a quarter of the world will be African, uh, which is just you know a staggering thing to think about. Uh, I think everybody's heard variations on this number so far, but you know, over a billion people with an average age of 19, uh, which means not only is it you know a rapidly growing population, but they're digitally native, and among other things, they expect to be able to prove their identity digitally. Digital identity in Africa is really coming to the forefront now. Uh, the governments are you know, really investing today, uh, and there's not a lot of like legacy systems around like there are in North America and Europe. And we're we're really blessed to see like all of these countries investing in this infrastructure and providing us the, the tools that we need to be able to provide these critical services. And it's only growing. Uh, these are just a few of the identity authorities that uh, we're currently integrated in. I think it was uh, O was talking about this. Fraud prevention is also a unique thing uh, on the continent. And you know, historically in the US and Europe, everything's really based around like proving the validity of a document or just sort of blocking entire regions. I think everybody's told stories around trying to use uh, you know, African-based credit card in Europe or in the US or vice versa, trying to use an American credit card in Legos doesn't really work very well. And it's because these sort of traditional methods of blocking things and preventing fraud just don't really apply um, in the market and they're really sort of clumsily used. Even tools that 
we think of as being sort of more state of the art in the US, like phone verification don't work. Uh, an average engineer on my team has three or four phones on them at any given time. They're switching networks to you know, gain access to the internet as things go up and down. They're swapping SIM cards all, all the time. All these things will you know, not work very well. The great thing though is you know, there's a lot of investment happening right now and it's all new. Uh, I've been working in fintechs in the US for a long time and I mean, I would have killed for the Social Security Administration or the DMV to have an API that you could use to like verify something, which of course you can't do. But in Africa, you can. And so I think much like a lot of the evolutions that happen in the continent, Africa's not taking this sort of linear approach like, oh, we're 20, 30 years behind the US and we're gonna go through all those steps. It's a step function, right? They're skipping an entire generation and they're launching digitally native APIs at the government level right now and allowing companies like us to tap into them. The opportunity is still huge though. Uh, I think you know, we were talking about carbon and flutter wave. In, the, in Europe and the US right now, there's 3.2 payment in instruments per person. Uh, in Africa right now, it's 0 0.5. And so you just get a sense, if you're looking at the fintech economy alone, just how big an opportunity it is. And for every one of these instruments to be issued, somebody has to be able to prove their identity. And you know, as this economy grows, this is, these are all these companies that uh, you know, people like Lexi and Pardon are investing in, and this is the shape of the, you know, the new economy. Uh, $5 billion last year. I think it's already $3 billion in the, just the first half of, of 2022, uh, and it's, it's coming along. And you know, we have the privilege to count a lot of these people as our customers, um, and we you know, really have the honor to play our small part in, in growing this ecosystem. And that's us. Uh, you know, we're a bunch of really dedicated folks on a big mission. Um, you know, who spent a lot of time establishing trusted relationships with all these idea authorities and our customers and investing in best of breed technology. Thank you. Thank you so much. Such a central technology that you guys are deploying across the continent. So I'm going to invite Deepankar of Omnibiz who will give us our final pitch. Panker, we invite them with a round of applause. Come on, guys. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, everyone. My name is Deepankar. Indian by origin, but African. Have grown up in Nigeria, lived there for 26 years, experienced, experienced various aspects of experience various aspects of life. I'm going to share our journey on how we are solving a problem, and I'll be happy to interact, answer any questions around that. The problem around access. How many of you think it's everyone's right to have access to essential goods? Every kid should have access to diapers. Every female should have access to sanitary pads. 
every household should have access to right quality of cooking oil. But this access is being made difficult, not just because of poverty, but also because of a distribution, because of a broken distribution system. And that's exactly what we are fixing. Let's talk about that problem. There are more than 1.2 million small retailers just in Nigeria. This is four times of the essential good retailers in the United States, in Nigeria. These retailers are too small, majorly because of the working capital restrictions they have. These working capital restrictions push them to keep very limited number of goods, which reduces their turnover, which reduces the access in the neighborhoods they serve, which also makes it very difficult for the manufacturers to offer their products into the nooks and corners of the country. And the same problem persists in other countries like Nigeria. The reason this problem becomes bigger and bigger is because of the broken supply chain. The three major problems around these retailers not being able to offer the right portfolio of products. One is around difficulty in procuring goods. They really have to step out of their comfort from their stores and move large distances to procure these goods. They don't have access to working capital, so they have to actually make do with whatever little capital is available to them. And the last and a very strong one is they have no growth tools available. So in terms of what marketing they can do, what price they should sell at, which goods they should keep, that data is not available to them. We solve this problem and we have been able, we have been able to uh, quadruple the output of our retailers on the platform. Let me explain to you how we solve these three problems. The first part of the problem, the next level procurement system has been, has been solved in a creative way. We have built a platform which is a two-sided marketplace, two-sided network, the network of suppliers where every distributor of essential goods is onboarded in partnership with the manufacturers. So we can actually see the manufacturers of rice, manuf uh, sorry, the importers of rice, the manufacturers of noodle, Nestle, Unilever, and we can see the inventory of all these people, all the distributors, which makes it easy for us to service the orders that we receive from the retailers. We've built a network of third-party logistics providers in the area where the distributors are there. This helps us reduce the effort in distributing the goods and maximizing the turnaround time so we can actually deliver much faster. And finally, with this network of distributors and network of logistics providers, we are the ones who are capable of offering the entire basket of the retailer. There are various other competitors in the market who serve between 100 to 200 SKUs, but we today are servicing 90% of the portfolio of our entire retailer, 900 plus SKUs. This being solved, solves a major problem. But even if we can deliver the goods to these retailers, the problem is where do they get the money? Because more than 67% of, sorry, my bad, more than 57% of these retailers do not have access to basic banking. 
So we are their first step in offering them the working capital loan. It's a very simple overdraft limit that is embedded into the wallet or into the app. And as they place more orders on the platform, their working capital limit goes on increasing. The last and a very interesting part of the problem and solution. If these people can procure, if these retailers can procure the goods efficiently, can get the working capital, how exactly will they market and get more customers on board? They have negligible resources to market and get more customers on the store. So we built a growth platform, a POS solution for these retailers, which enables them to plug in to promotions from these global brands. So when you go to Carefors or Walmart or various large stores, you can see promotions on Coca-Cola, Unilever products, Nestle products. But when you go to the mom and pop stores around your area, these promotions don't exist. But through our platform, these thousands of retailers can access promotions from these large multinationals because of which they are able to attract more footfall and grow their business. These are the three simple ways in which we have grown the bandwidth of the retailers. These problems are not just solving, uh, this, pro this is not just solving the problem of the retailer, but also the problem the manufacturers have had for long, where people are willing to keep the products which have been fast moving. But introduction of new SKUs, new products are not being introduced, are not being kept by the retailers. So today, lack of a national retailer is being bridged by us having 64,000 retailers on a single platform where a manufacturer can work with us and make the product available in all the 64,000 outlets across the country. Manufacturers in the past have not been able to see what happens to the goods once it leaves their warehouse. When it reaches the distributor, they have negligible visibility of what happens next. We provide the end-to-end -end visibility to these manufacturers. When we speak to the people from Nestle and ask them, how would this visibility help you? They say by minimizing the stockouts at the distributor point and at the retail outlet, we can double our sales. And that is exactly what we have done with the largest manufacturers as our partners. We have doubled the sales of these players in remotest areas in Nigeria. This is the dashboard which gives them a picture of what their distributors are keeping, what the retailer stockouts, what the retailer rotation looks like, and how the frequency of rotation is being improved. We started this business with a single revenue stream, which was taking a cut on the goods that we delivered a margin for every good that we delivered. Over a period of time, we have experimented and owned the transaction between the distributor and the retailer. So we have offered a wallet in the distributor's app and the retailer's app, which enables us to own the transaction. This is, we, these retailers no more do the cash transaction. They can easily collect the payments from their customers and pay for the orders they place to the distributors through our platform. They can also get a working capital loan. And finally, having end-to-end -end visibility gives us access to offer insights, promotions, and visibility to the manufacturer, which increases more revenue options for us. Last two years, we've seen great growth, great numbers, great traction. But I think the best part of what we've got as a, 
as a return on our commitment is uh, the retention of our customers. We are retailer obsessed and that is visible. 70% of the retailers who work with us have worked exclusively with us and not moved to the competition. Let's talk about competition. This place is very competitive. Some of the investors who are here have invested in our competitors. One of the uh, entrepreneurs who asked question, entrepreneur of Jabu, is doing the same thing in another market. So there are various players doing this. But the approach in solving the problem is a brilliant one. I would say everyone's approach is interesting and great, and we appreciate it. There's the approach of parallel distribution where it's an asset-heavy heavy approach. You create warehouses, you create logistics, and you try to replace the existing distributors and existing logistics providers. Then there is an approach of bulk orders, taking goods from the central locations to large at a discounted price to own the larger part of the GMV. And then there is an approach of long-term uh, long-term profitable, I mean, uh, profitability in the making. So the approach we have taken is we have brought the distributors on board, we brought the logistics providers on board, digitized the chain, so we have end-to-end -end visibility and control over the distribution. This gives you a perspective of why our margins are much higher than our competition, and also by providing higher uh, retention, we can prove that this is a more scalable model. We started from the largest and the most difficult country in Africa. Everyone knows, I mean, um, John spoke about what, what was the response when someone invited him to Lagos. It is difficult to do business in Nigeria, but if you have done business in Nigeria, learnings from Nigeria can be taken and used in other parts of Africa. We are in Nigeria and Ghana and are ready to expand to other parts of Africa. We have a team that has expertise in three core domains which is required to excel in this business. Myself, I have experience in FMCG and building SME tech solutions. We have people who have expertise in product and logistics. This makes us the right team which can deliver and be build a profitable model. Along with building a profitable model and earning and making, solving the problem of the retailers, we enjoy the impact that we create. We are changing the way the retail industry is structured, which has 78% of the entrepreneurs as female. This gives us the excitement to continue doing what we are doing in a much better and uh, scalable manner. By 2024, we would have uh, built a profitable, we would be profitable in our existing geographies. We would have expanded to five more geographies and uh, sorry, and we would have rolled out the financial services that we have introduced on the platform. If you are interested in participating or engaging with us, please reach out to me after the discussion. My email address is thepanker at omnibus.com. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you to all of the companies who pitched today. So as we wrap up today's exciting... Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next Conversations podcast coming soon. If you have a story that needs to be shared, we'd love to hear from you. For more information on Shack 15 and our community, you can email info at shack15.com, connect with us on Instagram, or visit our website at shack15.com.